This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, what's the difference between experiencing anxiety and having anxiety? If you wake up sad, does that mean you're depressed? Professor Denise Marigold helps us understand the difference, gives us some tools and tips. We're eager to get our hands on new technology. We're eager to learn about these gadgets and things in our lives, but what goes into them? Well, it takes exploration. It takes minerals. Geologist Kendra Johnson educates us on the world of exploring and mining critical minerals and how they power our society and what our future looks like with it. The future does look bright. Hockey fans are upset about the Vancouver Canucks treatment of Bruce Boudreaux. He was fired on the weekend. Is it normal for employees to be treated like this in professional sports? Well, it should not happen at any job. Somehow it did. An assistant professor of sports management, Taylor McKee from Brock, helps us understand what's going on inside sports and if this is a normal thing. It's all in the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. I was in the wilderness, and I probably should have left a trail of breadcrumbs. But you found me, and um, like all the best directors, you merely just showed me where to go to get to where I needed to be. If you, like a guy like Charlie, who I played in this movie, in any way struggle with obesity or you just feel like you're in a dark sea I want you to know that if you too can have the strength to just get to your feet and go to the light good things will happen thank you good night that speech is so incredibly touching it's mind-blowing brennan fraser gave that speech critics choice awards and i think it surprised everybody he's kind of a guy that disappeared he's much mocked he's uh been the sasquatches and the encino mans and all of the goofy characters and clearly there's a lot more going on than than running around as a yeti in that guy's heart and we wanted to talk about that the impact of that speech and having the courage to stand up on that stage and if you saw the video so many people in the audience were crying it was unbelievable not only the words he chose but it was so heartfelt uh denise marigold joins us here on the shift we want to talk about this associate professor university of waterloo um positivity psychology and all the things that go with this denise um, what's your takeaway from Brendan Fraser in that speech? Well, when you watch the speech and you see how emotional he got, I mean, without really knowing even much about him, you get the sense that he's been in that dark place. He's found some courage and strength to move forward, and it's been a very positive outcome for him. And that's very inspiring to people. You know, we want to feel hope. We want to feel like if we're in a dark place that things will get better for us or for the people we care about who are struggling and so to see someone come out and be so vulnerable about that publicly and end with this hopeful message um and you know if you do a little know a little bit more about what's been going on with him as you said you know he kind of fell off the grid for a while this is a big comeback for him he did fall on some hard times and so to really see that uh sort of coming back to the light is very uh, positive and hopeful message now i also got the feeling that when he finished, like, this is not over for him. He in no way mm-hmm. implied that this is some sort of silver bullet finish line that, hey, um, you know, I've got this figured out now. I, and to me, that was one of the coolest things because this seemed like, observationally, of course, yeah. that he really was basically saying, look, this is how you get started. I heard it as I haven't got this figured out and it's far from over. And I, that to me seemed like one of the most touching things because we fall down and scrape our knees so many times, whether it's at work, relationship with a boss, our relationship with ourselves, um, you know, our partner at home, whatever it is. And that, I mean, it's easy to say after some study that there is no finish line, but for somebody who's mm-hmm. just um, kicking that journey off, that, that could be a whole new realm of realizing, oh, by the way, I've just taken on a whole life's work, not just to the end of my course in six weeks, right? Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah, there's no quick fix for these kinds of adversities and, and struggles we have. And, uh, you know, you, but you have to start somewhere and, and start building. And so I think one of the most important things for our well-being and, and thriving is warm human connection, close relationships. And if people have that in their life, that's not going well, they're kind of lonely or lacking connection, uh, you know, they can start moving towards taking some risks, being vulnerable, working on their relationships. But those absolutely take time and hard work, right? That's the kind of thing that really important to our flourishing isn't going to be you turn around and, and make it happen. Um, even some other things when people are wanting to bring more positivity or joy in their lives. Again, you don't just snap your fingers and there it is. Um, sometimes we even we even recommend people start small, like start savoring some more very basic, simple, positive experiences, a beautiful walk in nature, you know, having a good laugh with someone, building more of that into your life. And, and you build that capacity, right? And the positivity begets more positivity, right? You sort of open yourself up and seek out just these small positive experiences and can kind of open new worlds for you and how you feel and how you connect with other people. Brendan Fraser's speech was so touching and maybe it was intended by him. I don't know. It came out of left field for me. And <laughs> one of the coolest things about it was we here on the shift, we were like, okay, well, it's January and we all know what that means. And uh, the so many of us, I think we live into the fact that we're told that we're supposed to be sad in January. That's a whole other conversation, yeah. right? That's and that's the blue Monday thing, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and passed, I'm really yeah. glad that this year, uh, there's been a lot of work to expose Blue Monday as it was just a marketing ploy by a travel company who hired a psychologist who has publicly admitted he regrets it. Um, <laughs> that, um, But at the same time, it does get people talking. We just need to know that that statistically speaking, Blue Monday is not, is not the saddest day of the year. That wasn't measured and that was just a marketing ploy. Kind of good to look at both sides of that equation. And then the timing of this, you know, it's kind of yeah. kismet. Yeah, you can see why people might have some sense or have more of a sadness or lack of excitement. There's less to look forward to in January mm -hmm. for most people. You know, that hol holidays are over. There's no big holiday on the horizon, depending where you live. Uh, you know, it's the dead of winter. Things that you've got a while to go before spring and more light and warmth comes. Uh, so you can see why people might be feeling that a little bit. But yeah, I mean, th that kind of sadness or struggle can happen for people at, at any time. And, and lots of people are enjoying, you know, downhill skiing or other, um, you know, spent time with family and friends over the holidays and were able to sort of rebuild that, those, some of those connections, right? So it can re and really vary there. But uh, for a lot of people, you know, that kind of speech definitely would be a poignant time. Well, we talk about sadness, Denise, the... Um we have to acknowledge that there's something there. That's one of the first steps. So we've heard this again and again. You just got to acknowledge that there's some sort of spur, if you will. I like to call it my, the little demons that I, I tell to go sit in the corner. And, and maybe you don't have to wrestle with them today, but once you acknowledge that, okay, I see you, there you are. Yeah. Um, Dr. Jody Carrington, she always says, name it to tame it. That's her phrase. And, right. and that's such a great one. Um, so it is a good kickstart for us to be able to look at these things, but what's the tipping point of, you know, convincing, you know, mental health days, mental health marketing campaigns, all that, turning it into a marketing campaign versus the tipping point of just acknowledgement and good self-awareness. Cause I get cautious and you're the, this is your lane, not mine. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I get cautious about there's a level of stepping into the conversation and then mm -hmm. there's a level of a little bit opportunistic. Um, but at the same time, you can really create connection with people that are lost but you also don't want to talk people into feeling sad. Um, right. How do we balance all of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think there's always, like you said, there's there's a real uh, benefit in being able to acknowledge and accept and notice the sadness or negative feelings that you're experiencing. Um, you know, even there's some research suggesting that people who try and push away negative emotions, whether sadness or anxiety or whatnot, actually struggle a little bit more, um, you know, particularly when there's that sense of, um, you know, I should be happy. They put them pre pressure on themselves to be happy, right? So keeping that in the conversation, that sadness, those negative feelings, they're a normal part of life to engage with. Um, you know, there's a lot has been done in the last number of years that to really get people talking about things. And I think there's we've made huge 
strides in the stigma of the mental illness, mental illness, anxiety, and depression. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of torn on the, it's great when there's campaigns, I think like the Bell Let's Talk campaign, great to raise awareness. If it happens to be some good PR for the company, okay. But I do think we also have to keep in mind that sometimes even when we're trying our best, we're well-intended, there can be unintentional harms, right? There can be um, questions raised or issues coming out that um, aren't being properly addressed or people aren't really, or people are feeling maybe pressured to reveal something about themselves to mm. publicly that they're not actually comfortable doing. Yeah, totally, so yeah. kind of got to look at that. Yeah. Well, so in your work that you do, I mean, uh, you know, positive relationships, self-esteem, all that stuff. I mean, yeah. you can't have positive without negative, right? They dance. Yeah. So you must have to dance with the negative in this too. And and I always look at, we say mental health, mental illness, and all these things. And it is okay. And I think, and cor your correction, please. Um, it is okay to just be sad in a moment. And that doesn't mean you're mentally ill. And I worry that Absolutely. some of this conversation leads people to believe I have anxiety, right? Or I, uh, I, I am anxious versus if, as the word guy, I am experiencing anxiety right now, or I am experiencing tightness, or I'm experiencing sadness today. And I believe, and through the help of my counselor, that you know I don't suffer from depression. There is depression in my family history, but I don't mm -hmm. think I do. Um, that it is okay to be exhausted. It is okay to be, you know, wake up and be sad. And I, yeah. I'll call this out for myself is, and to, to get to the point is that I woke up this morning and I don't know if I had bad dreams last night or, or conflicted dreams or whatever. I was a grouchy bear this morning. <laughs> I was full on mad at the world. And, you know, I do subscribe to the mad is sad and disguise sort of notion. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, what would I be sad about today? I couldn't figure it out. Try to meditate with it. Try to just be with it. See what came and uh, waited for the good to come. So you know what yeah. I did? I got out and I started to do something. And I did. I changed my pattern. I got out. I started to get some things done in my day. I'm okay. cautious. That's how it works for me. It doesn't work for yeah. everybody that way. Um, yeah. But for um, but I worry that we fall into this bucket and we're telling everybody, by the way, you're mentally ill when you could just be sad. Yeah, I think there's a real difference in in terms of the sort of degree and severity and the interference in our daily function of these kinds of feelings. So the whole range of human emotion, positive and negative, is part of a normal, healthy life, right? It's when that anxiety or those sad feelings get so frequent and so intense that you can't have relationships with people to the degree that you normally would or would like to, that you can't fully do your work. You're in a brain fog, right? You can't get out of bed or bring yourself to motivate yourself to do anything. So when it really starts to interfere with, with daily function, I think. Um, but on the other side of that, there's also, I think, such a sort of cultural norm about, you know, we should be cheerful, we should be happy, that often people actually feel guilty for feeling mm. these sad feelings or anxious feelings or yeah. particularly or feel guilty when... for feeling happy even, which is the other yeah. end of the spectrum, <laughs> right? Me too, yeah. Um, this, or, you know, if you're thinking, like you're saying, I woke up feeling sad, I don't really want to know what I'm sad about. Some people get into this sort of self-talk of, oh, I don't know I'm sad. I really shouldn't be sad. I, you know, my life is actually pretty good. I don't know. I should try and put that away. I should try and focus on the positive. And I, I think there's something to that. Like you said, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do something. Maybe I'll connect with something or do something I enjoy. But you can do that while honoring those sad feelings too. And knowing that it, it's always going to ebb and flow, right? You're not going to feel that way forever. You don't need to push it away, right? It will naturally, things will move up and down. So now when we look at, when we look at how to be positive, for me, um, I find I... I just need to pattern interrupt. That That's a big one for me. I just get up. Okay. I, I know, okay, what's one thing? And it's kind of like uh, Eat That Frog, right? Um, the book where just get one little thing done today. Yeah. Um, and get one little one little victory from, that's Brian Tracy's book, one little victory that can help you um, just take one step forward, whether it's empty the dishwasher or clean the counter or get out and get this one errand done that needs to be done or get out and go for a walk with the dog because the dog is all over you and just needs to get out anyway. Yeah. Um, so I find that works for me. What, what do you find in your expertise about just being able to, like you said, you got me there with honor it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time though, you, you can't fight it, but you also can't let it kick your ass either. Um, it's gotta be a fine line. It feels very three-dimensional. How, how would you recommend yeah. that we start to look at it? 
Well, I think there's a couple things there. One, I think people sometimes need to think of having a positive life, flourishing, doing well as a practice, right? That there are, there are things that you need to practice. And so gratitude, for example, lots of research on gratitude and the power of gratitude and being grateful, but it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm feeling pretty crappy these days. Um, I better be grateful. Yep going to do it, be grateful, right? But about starting a gratitude practice and whether that's, you know, journaling at the end of the day, three things you were grateful for, or making an effort to bring it up at uh, the family dinner of, you know, everyone goes around and says what they're grateful for. So little things like that, that you can start to make, you know, sort of build into your day or to your experience where it's, there's an intention. I think the intention needs to be there. So it's not just, um, you know, get up, uh, what am I doing? Right. Having some intentions and, but also being, again, honoring that piece that some days you're just not going to feel it. Some days you're just going to be like, you know, I don't, I just can't feel grateful today. And, and that's okay. Right. Letting that sit like that, but returning to it when you're, when you're ready to. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, as we have context to, um, I just want to invite people to this, is that is okay if you can't find gratitude for yourself in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do always stand by this challenge that if there is happy, uh, if you want to find happy and you feel sad, you can't have sad unless happy is present somehow. It's much like the left, right, up, down. It's your positive, negative dance that happens. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're going to find it. It doesn't mean it's a default, right? Yeah. But if you start to listen to other people and listening can create a new frame for you, yeah. uh, reframing would be the, the proper term, but it allows you to create some perspective of what other people are going through or what another situation is. Sometimes gratitude is found when you allow yourself some new space to expand your conscious bubble, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how can maybe something that works for you, what you go through personally, your professional opinion, uh, is there something there that you can share that, that maybe allows that reframe or because that's what sounds like happened um, to Brennan Fraser in his speech? Right. Um, I think it, I think it depends on on what people's situation is. And certainly that when people are having a dark time, I mean, not all darkness is created equal. Right. Like some mm. people if it's a real chronic oppression, poverty, chronic illness versus something more temporary, I, I think you might need to have, you know, look at that a little differently. Some of those more chronic issues and traumas might need a little bit more professional help, right? Absolutely. Where if it's yeah. something that's just kind of, you know, it's it's a tough time, you know, you're going to move through it. I think that's where you can uh, more start those kind of practices. Um, but really, I think even more importantly is to be connecting with other people, to be sharing that experience with other people. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the research finds that one way to kind of, you know, or one of the best ways, actually, or most reliable ways to sort of help your own well-being is to help others. And so not just thinking about your own life, how to frame your own life in your own day. Um, what? Can, where can I go like be of service? Where can, you know, whether it's a formal volunteering role or just, you know, helping your neighbor shovel the driveway, any of those kinds of things, um, I think can really move people you know, sometimes you need, just need to move out of that self-focus, right? Instead of, okay, what's going on with me? What do I need to do today? Move out of that self-focus, move towards someone else. And in doing so, some of that uh, sort of self-rumination about your own anxieties and troubles just kind of naturally dampens a bit. Is it kind of crazy to think how we we are naturally more willing to give it away than we are willing to give it to ourselves? But yeah. hey, if it, if it works and kicks the ball down the road and gets it started, why not take it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a really great quote I heard recently was, um, you know, you can't really uh, kick away the darkness. You can't really ask it to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, like you said, I think when you said, like, not all darkness is created equal, that that that's why I, I bring this up. And you can't really get ask it to leave, but you can shine a light on it. And that's what Brendan Fraser started with was shining the light. Is yeah. that a good example where gratitude starts is that way? Yeah, I think so. I think there's... Um... I mean, there's a couple ways to think about it. One is sort of shining light on the darkness. Um, and another is sort of, you know, thinking about the light as something that's there in all of us, in, in yourself and the people around you and being able to sort of move towards that, right? Thinking of that that goodness, recognizing that goodness in humanity and others and in yourself, right? And, and starting to sort of move some of that uh, negative stuff aside can sometimes be, can sometimes feel like a place to start. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely not not necessarily an easy thing. And I mean, I think another 
important thing to remember is that overcoming some kind of adversity adversities is not necessarily a do-it-yourself endeavor you know because we've been talking a lot about what can you do what do you do as a person what are your thoughts and feelings but our social environments our political environments these all have can have a significant impact on our health and well-being right a positive attitude is great to take advantage of opportunities you may find but a positive thinking is not necessarily sufficient to survive a natural disaster or overcome childhood trauma or thrive in an inequitable workplace right you need right. also need to have that larger in that context that government policies, supportive policies, close caring relationships in communities. We are starting to see a little bit more traction in all things mental health, which is good. Yeah. Um, I will say this. I know I have a couple of friends who are psychologists and, and you know, it's one of those catch 22s, but the amount of resources that have gone down over the last 10 or 15 years is quite staggering. Like it's literally gone down to nothing. Like here's your 1-800 number. Maybe there's a volunteer that can answer the phone today. Sort of bad. Um, right. Now we're starting to see a little bit of an injection. It's not enough, but it hopefully starts on the right path for everybody. The invitation is absolutely there. I openly admit I have my patty. She's the best counselor that I can ever imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Counseling is is available. And sometimes counseling is not possible financially. There are yeah. free services out there. They're hard to get. There are uh, all kinds of faith groups, too, and community groups where yeah. that can get the ball rolling. What do you see as some easy access points for people who don't even know where to start with that or maybe have a thing about making that phone call? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there's... I mean, some of those lines, those those kind of anonymous lines, sometimes if people feel like they can't show up somewhere and ask for help directly, I mean, some of those can be a good place to start. Um, you know, and I think also just thinking about uh, well, not just sort of treating the mental illness, but what's going on for people that they can be proactive about their well-being, right? Because the counseling can be really helpful, really useful. Um, but sort of going a little bit back to building that capacity in your life to be resilient, right? And, and that doesn't necessarily negate the need for counseling, right? But also to just be able to, um, you know, again, develop those relationships, have ways of um, being engaged in life, whether whatever in your work and your other activities, having some sense of meaning or direction, right? And so I think thinking about those things too can be really helpful along the side of, you know, having that direct kind of counseling. Um, even, you know, just talking to a supportive friend, you know, sometimes it's not really about having someone solve your problem, but just having someone get you and see you and know you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that can also be a good starting place. And when people feel like, okay, I need a little bit more than that, then seeking out that professional help might, you know, certainly be really necessary for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And you never know, you could find out that you're just allergic to carrots and that's why you're in a fog, but a professional can help <laughs> you get there. Yeah, it's true. And you could find <laughs> out that you have the the kind of pro professional expertise that helps you deal with the things that you need to deal with. So um, yeah. kick it down the road. Well, um, companionship is really what we wanted to create here on the shift for the course of the week and the opportunity to do that. Uh, I think we have that in conversations like this. Brendan Fraser, you know, has the courage to stand up in front of that stage and we don't have to be movie stars uh, to do that. And um, yeah. we get to just, we get to get it started. So I really appreciate you being here, Denise. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is The Shift Podcast. Mining in Canada. Whoa, this is a topic that I always find is grossly misrepresented. Here's what we've seen. Cole's Notes version, just in case you don't ever watch any news or read anything. Um, projects in Alberta have basically been shut down. Uh, at least they're being stymied in a big way with the federal government, banking, all kinds of systems. But now there is all kinds of new ways to mine. Uh, there's the announcement in Quebec about uh, minerals and the, the Canadian Shield in Northern Ontario stands to have massive opportunities in mining. Responsible mining, as a kid who grew up in Fort McMurray, is, a, is an important part of my life. I, I would not be here today if it weren't for the mining industry. It's just that simple. But I also was there in the early 80s when I saw what not very responsible mining looked like. And then going back and visiting my sister who's up there and seeing what 
unbelievable changes mining has gone through to create so much work around being responsible and reclaiming land. And frankly, some of it's more beautiful than it was when it started. And here's the cool part. Mining happens not only in Alberta, by the way. It happens in Saskatchewan. It happens in Ontario. It happens in Quebec. It also is a absolute pillar of the economy in British Columbia kind of gets hidden behind everything else that's going on. And that's where we start this conversation. Kendra Johnson is the president and CEO of the Association for Mineral Exploration, BC. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here and chat with your audience. Y'all responsible mining folks in BC have been working hard lately. We have been working hard lately, and uh, you know, I, I actually represent the mineral explorers, and so we we do draw a little bit of a line in the sand between the explorers and the miners around here. But um, well, definitely, uh, sorry, I want to step on that because it's it's like it's like a cause and effect, right? Like it's so important that everybody dances together because when one guy doesn't participate in this process, everybody gets thrown into a negative bucket. That's right, and uh, yeah, and you're right. There's a there's a really long uh, chain of things that needs to happen to be able to put a mine into production, and that starts with a prospector and the discovery potential, and then you know eventually after a whole lot of permitting goes into to building a mine, and then like you said at the start, that reclamation process of how the land comes back to to be fully restored is uh, is a pretty amazing thing, and we have some great examples of that in BC. Well, many people like myself will probably imagine you and your folks with your pickaxe and your backpack walking through the mountains, um, old school style, like we've seen in all the movies and all the storybooks. It's not really like that today. It's not like that at all today. And I think uh, <laughs> the general uh, vision that people conjure when they think of an explorer is good old Yukon Cornelius and, you know, giant beard, gold pan in hand, or, or like you say, rock pick, um, and out hiking. And, and we very much hike, but I mean, I'm a geologist and, you know, I'm, I'm a young female in this industry and that's definitely not the norm or hasn't been the norm. It's becoming more and more the norm, but, uh, yeah, our industry has changed vastly in the last, uh, decade or two. And, uh, you know, like you say, the responsible uh, practices that we've put into place since the 80s have have changed miraculously. So um, we're not we're certainly not what the, the vision that people conjure yeah. is anymore. Yeah, it's true. Although you would look fantastic in plaid. Just saying. Yeah. Well, thank you. I do. <laughs> I love it. So tell us, help us understand what does exploration, what does geology look like? What is this industry of exploration when you, you guys are not only just searching for, you know, capitalist gains, but finding out what's there and how it all works and everything everything else behind it. So help us understand a little bit of what that looks like. Yeah, so we like to think of exploration as a, a giant treasure hunt, really. Um, it starts with a lot of computer desktop-based studies of what the land looks like, what we already know about it, what some of the geochemistry is and the geophysics, um, and trying to put that puzzle piece together. And so um, from all of that data, we can typically vector into an area of interest. Um, and it's generally quite a large area. Uh, a general fun fact is that one in 10,000 exploration projects ever becomes a mine. And so we have 17 operating mines in British Columbia right now. Uh, so that's a whole lot of exploration projects that led to those those 17 projects being being put into production. Um, but once we can vector in, it then takes on the order of about 20 to 25 years to go from an exploration play uh, into an actual operating mine. So, you know, it's not something that happens overnight and there's many things that need to to happen for it to become an economic deposit. And that, you know, has a lot of financial implications. It also has a lot of environmental and sustainability operations. It's, you know, engaging with the, the local First Nation communities before you even step foot on the ground. Um, it's making sure that you're monitoring the water, both the flow and the chemistry of it um, in whatever stream or tributary or massive river uh, is near you. It's looking at the rocks under a hand lens and under, um, really incredible scientific machinery at university labs. So there's a lot of um, hardcore science that goes into it, but there's also in a lot of cases, a lot of luck. I was gonna say that, I mean, it is so scientific. There's an element of a crystal ball there where you're like, oh, way to go, Dave. We put the hole in, there's nothing here. Like there, there's, there's a little bit of crystal ball there. Yeah, and so one of the things we talk a lot about is mineral potential mapping, and and of course in in BC and across the rest of Canada, we're doing a lot of land use planning, 
um, to try to you know, understand where the boundaries are and, and what that looks like and which areas we need to make parks. We've got mandates federally and provincially to add more parkland. And so wanting to understand what those types of boundaries look like before we take them out of um, a space where you could potentially develop them. And when you compare to an industry like forestry, um, you can see the resource, you can see the trees growing, you can see the size of the trees, you have an idea of what that looks like. When you talk about a new mine, it's all underground, it's buried, you have you know, the general person who's not the geologist working on that project doesn't know what that looks like um, or how big it is. And they don't know that it exists until somebody drills that first drill hole to find it, or quite frankly, the hundredth drill hole uh, to find it. So trying to do as much work as we can to find out where the potential of those deposits might be so that we can factor that in um, to any work that's being done in the in the future. Looking across Canada, of course, with the recent deals announced in Quebec and everything um, that goes around that, I mean, I did do radio in Sudbury for a little bit, so I got to do the the nickel tours and all those things. Like, they stand yeah. in Sudbury to do quite well out of what this new uh, world of mining looks like. But, I mean, in Canada, there is a lot of opportunity here for uh, going forward. And I have some questions, too, about tonnage. Um, but, you know, are you excited about where Canada's look at mining? I mean... Not here's the thing about mining is that we morning mine mining one product doesn't diminish the work of the other products that get mined in industry. So I want to be clear with that um, because in Canada we are so lucky for resources. Oh my God, it's everywhere. And so, are you excited about where some of these new moves and some of these other minerals are looking for BC and for Canada in general? Absolutely. We're in such a fascinating um, conversational environment right now with, with mineral exploration and mining. Um, the whole uh, federal critical minerals strategy has just opened up um, a world for us and, and brought that conversation into mainstream media of the importance of minerals and metals. You know, we all want electric vehicles and solar panels to power our our uh, our houses and our you know whatever else we're using um we want to transition to wind power like there's there's just a really interesting conversation there and we don't have the minerals and metals right now needed to do that and a lot of people go to well it's okay we can get them from recycling that's not even going to begin to cut it so um so for example an electric vehicle takes four times more copper than a regular combustion uh, engine car. So to make that transition and to make sure that everybody who wants an electric vehicle has one, we need a lot more copper. And that doesn't take into account any of the, the building that's happening around the world, right? We've got um, countries overseas and in Asia and India wanting to progress and become first world neighborhoods. And they all require you know, new TVs and new cars and new copper pipes and all these things to be able to do that. And so uh, the, the way the world is going and with all the climate change conversations that are happening at the same time, and here in BC, we've had floods and fires and all kinds of crazy things over the last couple of years. Um, it, it's real. Climate change is real. And we have to be able to to adapt, which means we have to be able to mine cleanly and, and sustainably. And we're really lucky in Canada to have really great regulations that allow us to do that. And if you compare it to some of the other countries around the world who aren't following as stringent rules as us, I think we would much prefer as a as you know, socially conscious human beings to have that work being done close to home and have it provide great jobs and great economic development and um, really clean minerals and metals for those products to be held close to home. So yeah. absolutely excited about where this is going because it's it's now a mainstream conversation um, that you have with you know somebody standing in the in the lineup with you at the grocery store and that used to be an oh I work for mining I don't want to talk about it because they're going to hate me. Yeah. That conversation has changed. That perception has changed, and that's awesome. Well, that is awesome because it does help all of the energy, all of the uh, minerals, all of the conversation to realize how hard these companies have worked and how far they've come in order to create um, a whole new output. You said quality minerals that comes out of it. When you look at around the world, though, you know there are places in the world where it's quite deplorable. Like it's bad. Um, a little head shaking at times, perhaps, to wonder why it's taken us this long to realize or at least take action on the fact that here in Canada, we have responsible, some of the most responsible organizations around. And not only that, you know, human rights about employment standards, let alone the minerals, yeah. right? Like it's taken us way too long, Kendra, to get to this point. It really has. It really has. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. 
Absolutely. Just hide yeah. it, right? You can hide it somewhere else. Uh, we don't have to look at it, right? It's never the answer, but it does, and unfortunately, happen yeah. every time and again. But um, okay, well, so let's yeah. let's talk about BC here because we hear about uh, you know Northern Ontario, we hear about Quebec, we hear about these places that have all these minerals. Uh, what 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 is special about BC that most people don't understand from from this perspective of exploration and and the minerals that are there? Yeah, so it's a little bit of the distinction between exploration and mining. So Quebec and Ontario have really big projects. They have really big companies that are working there that are that are mining. British Columbia has those as well. Um, you know, Tech is is um, headquartered here, and they're one of the largest mining companies in the world. Um, but what we have in BC is really that exploration focus, and we are one of two center of excellences around the world for mineral exploration. There's 1,200 junior exploration companies based in Vancouver alone. That's 40% of the TSX. So it's you know wow. it's an incredible, yeah, it's it's a large amount. And the you know there's a number of uh, exploration companies off in uh, in Ontario as well. Um, they would be the second most across Canada, but the other main center of excellence globally is actually uh, in Perth, Australia. And so, you know, those are the two main jurisdictions for the juniors and the number of people in the business that that creates, whether it be, you know, office rent or accounting or legal services or engineering services, you know, the logistics of where all the supplies come from, the fact that we're sitting here on a, a major port and have access to, uh, to Asia for all of our, our smelting needs and that kind of thing. Um, it, BC's got a whole lot going for it, and it's incredibly rich in minerals and metals. We're, uh, we're actually the larger producer, the largest producer of copper in Canada really? coming out of BC. Well, okay, so well, yeah. you, you picked the worst terrain to move stuff through, but um, it is the most beautiful yeah. view at work. And um, <laughs> But at the same time, I, that was going to be my thing. It's like, what is there? What What is so important that's in and around BC that, that makes it so special. So copper and, and help us understand that and what else? Yeah, so copper is the largest. Uh, gold is actually the largest by uh, exploration spend. Uh, so people are out looking primarily for gold in BC, mm. but uh, copper is the largest uh, produced is, element. Is that just because gold is, return is just that much more staggering? You know, uh, yes, partially. Um, it also has to do with the fact that gold and copper often are found together oh. in the ground, and so many of the copper deposits also produce gold. Um, so it's, some of it comes down to marketing and branding of what it is that you're looking for and whether you market your project as a gold project or a copper project, which may change on the day because they kind of go hand in hand. Um, but we're also now, again, the critical minerals conversation comes back into this. We have some really interesting nickel projects coming on board. Uh, we're starting to extract... Um, more of the minor elements from mixed metal mines. And so we're producing more zinc, more molybdenum um, coming out of projects that are primarily copper projects, but they've got these other uh, metals in the mix as well. And so it's, it's that technology innovation piece where we're trying to uh, understand the metallurgy and, and the chemistry of a project and be able to extract a little bit more from it. So uh, we're also Canada's only producer of molybdenum. I don't even know what that is. So there you go. It's a critical mineral that's uh, definitely required mostly for solar panels, but uh, certainly all of our electronics as well. So now tonnage is a thing because you hear these stats of like, it takes 15,000 tons to get one ton of, of this. And uh, you know, they got to take 22,000, you know, pounds of, or out to get one pound of that and stuff like that. So is this where exploration is so important because that efficiency, maybe saturation would be another word. Um, you know, I mean, that would be key when you're talking 22 to one, any business model in the world says you are chewing up your margins. So, um, and not to mention impact, we talked about responsible mining, right? Um, and wouldn't it be nice to not move 22 acres of stuff just to get one acre of good stuff, you know? So, um, is that efficiency? Is that how that works? And is that, is that where your world really is key to try to find the most saturated deposits? I would say that's uh, the real key to that piece of it is the geologist. And whether they're an exploration geologist or a mine geologist, it's the geologist that's really responsible for finding those efficiencies and finding um, finding where the best concentration is. Oh, concentration, and so, yeah, that's word. done by, yeah. yeah, it's done by a whole lot of drilling. Um, and you're right, you don't want to move more ground. I mean, one, that's just not economic at all. It's not environmentally friendly. It's, you know, you want to move the least amount of solid ground as possible. But, you know, we also have the option to go underground and, and mine very much similar to um, 
to a laparoscopic surgery in a lot mm. of ways. You can go in underground with a drill rig and, and remove material and build a small sort of tunnel or stope um, into the earth and, and extract material that way as well, which means you don't have to worry about the overburden and the cover. You don't have to move it. You don't have to treat it. You don't have to, you don't have to touch it. It can stay natural mm. in place. Don't have to blow up the mountain to get the below. nugget underneath, right? Exactly. That's yeah. cool stuff. Yeah, now, although do our best not to blow up mountains. Right, that's generally bad. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, that is very... Perception, not reality. Well, that's very evil, <laughs> evil author, author, ter, uh, authoritarian movie kind of thing. Um, we often misunderstand in all this. I want you to talk about your love for rocks. When a geologist, because I, I know a couple of geologists, I mean, hey, you live in Alberta. There's a lot of geologists around here because of all the mining. Um, the When you're a geologist, geologists love the rocks. While the journey and, like you said, the uh, you know the hunt, the search, all of that stuff is is a big part of it. The people who don't want to wreck the mountain the most are the people who love the rocks. Can you just, because we often misunderstand that. People are like, oh, mm -hmm. you're going out to steal the rocks. Nope. It's the, we don't want to wreck the rocks. We love the rocks. I mean, that's where the nerdiness really kicks in for you guys, right? So every single geologist had a rock collection as a child. Exactly. Every single one. And every single one looked at the shiny little bits in the rock. Most of them totally worthless. Most of them quartz or mica that's totally not even of any importance really in the big picture. Um, but, you know, it's that shininess that draws you in. It's the jigsaw puzzle that, you know, where are you going to find it and how do you find it? And it's this drive for the search. But I think the other thing that, that most people don't realize about geologists is that they've gone into this industry because they li loved backcountry hiking or backcountry skiing. They love the environment. They love being outside. And they have no desire whatever to tear up the earth and, and pull it apart. It's, it's really that drive for to understand environment and understand how all those rocks fit together and why certain trees grow in one area when they don't grow in another. Um, and yes, vegetation can actually help you pinpoint uh, or vector into a different deposit model um, because different trees grow in different environments with different chemistries. So um, it's understanding the full environmental picture that you're looking at um, that really, I think, drives most geologists. But yeah, we certainly, all of us, every last one of us had a rock collection as a kid. Now, Discovery Day for kids um, is happening. Um, this is something people might not know about. It is on the West Coast. We broadcast all across Canada, so it's not for everybody, clearly. But there are local things that happen in STEM and other, uh, you know, industry studies. I just thought this was really great. Uh, Discovery Day in BC, uh, one, uh, what are you excited about sort of with the kids coming in and we'll just yeah. translate that to everyone who has a niece or a nephew or who's ever met a kid if you've ever met a kid you could pass this on yeah so discovery day is always one of the most fun days because you do see that you know the eyes widen of, of little kids and we're talking little kids from you know a year a year and a half to like 18 and then, you know they go into our our uh, secondary student program and they're still wide-eyed at what they get to see but um discovery day is always a lot of fun we have a seismograph to talk about earthquakes we've got a stump the geologist where you can bring in your rock from home and totally nerd out with the geologist and have them tell you what that mineral is and, and what it means and what you might find uh, if you go back to where you found that rock um, we've got, uh, an exploration camp set up so you can go in and see what it's like to live out in the boonies all by yourself on a mountaintop and, uh, explore each and every day. We've got gold panning here. Um, and then there's just a lot of like family fun activities. We've got a kind of candy machine and popcorn and all kinds of fun things, uh, to keep kids entertained and, and keep them, you know, give them a bit of break from the rocks and then come back to the rocks and, and spend more time to dig in. So it's always a great event and, uh, you know. We do our best to welcome everybody and uh, and accommodate everyone. Kendra Johnson is the president and CEO of the Association for Mineral Exploration, BC, the AME. And um, take this to to the nieces, the nephews, the grandkids. Take this conversation um, and, and let Kendra's awesome example of uh, women in industry as well not be forgotten in this too, that the old stereotypes are long gone in this world. And, um, and it's important that everybody gets exposed to this conversation because we love the mountains and we love all of it and the responsibility part is so important and it's really nice to hear that Canada has so much benefit that can come and at the same time um, so much responsibility to take as, as they do that. So I really appreciate this. Thank you, Kendra. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
This is the Shift Podcast. What is happening, Vancouver? Okay, now, all, you know, full disclosure here, I am a Flames fan, and this year it's very disappointing um, because it's, it's, well, it's just disappointing. Vancouver Canucks fans, though, like you Oilers fans are the most loyal of all the fans, but you're loud loyal, right? You're loud loyal, and you should probably be the general manager of the team. Jets fans are just, like, quiet loyal, always loyal. They'll be like, we love Canadian teams. Jets are number one. You know, they're, like, quiet loyal. Uh, Leafs fans are incredibly fickle, a lot like Flames fans, And um, but you're patient. You've been very, very patient. Now, Ryan is a Canadians fan, and ugh, whatever. And... Um, and then the Senators, boy, they have a lot of work to do. But you Canucks fans, I'm curious your thoughts of everything that's been going on. And we wanted to get some expert input on coaching and the Canucks. Taylor McKee is here. He is assistant professor of sports management at Brock University in St. Catharines. What's up, St. Kitts? Um, we, uh, of course, we, we ripped through there on 900 AM out of Hamilton and 640 out of Toronto. So, um, Taylor, we... Um, Maybe you can recap what happened because this has been one of the most, my words, deplorable examples of bad business and terrible human resources that I've seen ever in hockey. This is that's my my view. Oh, I mean, well, this is this is truly unprecedented stuff. I mean, we are seeing something in, in Vancouver that I'm not I'm not sure I've seen in North American professional sport. I think you see this every now and again when there is rifts between the Department of Sports of the various companies in, in with, with regards to European soccer or even South American soccer. This can happen sometimes where certain coaches who may or may not have been legends at their clubs develop cults of personality and they're very popular among the fans, but the management structures don't like them. But in North American pro sports, this is very, very, very unusual. And you have a situation now, I mean, to, to begin, I mean, I suppose we could start back with with Jim Rutherford taking over as uh, as president of hockey operations. And uh, at that point, if you just want a, a small laundry list of what happened since he took over, you have an extension to JT Miller, seven years, $8 million a year. Uh, you have a, a scandal which Francesco Acolini is facing a lawsuit over child support. you got a human rights complaint from the dismissal of Rachel Dory. You have an, uh, an investigation being conducted of some variety into Tanner Pearson's uh, injury. A, a player for the Vancouver Canucks is, is hurt. It's it's not so bad. It's going to be a couple weeks. Turns out it's going to be a uh, long term. Turns out it's going to be an entire season. There's And his players, his uh, you know, teammates have said, I don't like how this has been handled. Like they've flat out said that. And that is very strange to to be sort of saying that, like, I don't I don't trust the medical staff, because if you think about that from from a player's perspective, uh, you better hope that those people have your your best intentions at heart. Mm -hmm. And that's all of the things that have occurred before we start talking about this extremely protracted and very weird saga with their head coach, where he was essentially, I mean, look, and I'm sure we'll get into this uh, a little bit further, Shane, but. I mean, on performance basis, it makes a little bit of sense. Obviously, it makes a lot of sense to to, to move on from yeah. a coach given the year that, that they've had. But yep. for the past five or six weeks now, essentially, he's been fired without being fired and public comments about courting other coaches. And then this sort of bizarre situation where he was left hanging on the uh, on the line here for the last 10 days or so, basically pre-fired while he was given uh, various tributes by players on opposing teams and his own fans, all while not being fired until uh, until Sunday morning. So it was just a bizarre situation in Vancouver. Well, and so Bruce Boudreaux, uh, Bruce, there it is, which was, I loved how it was all over the arena last night, um, well, Saturday night, I should say, um, that, you know, as the, the fans were, I stand with Bruce, everything else. When he came in a year ago, year or so ago, he basically turned a, a non-performing, non-participatory team, like the team wasn't even participating in hockey at that point. Um, and he turned them into and inspired them into a bunch of winners, and they did great. And then they – now, this season has been quite deplorable. I still don't put that on the coach. He's got a long history of success, and he, but he's not a young man. And when, he, when he's standing there on the bench on Saturday night and he's in tears as he soaks it all in before he walks down the hallway, he knows that could be his last game. And after his long legacy of wild success – Bruce Boudreaux, his send-off from the NHL is potentially that. That's the end. That's the punctuation mark on his long career. And that's what bugs me the most. 
I think you're well within your rights to sort of imagine that term, not just as, you know, a bad season gone, gone, you know, awry, of which there is going to be 16 or 17 of those in the NHL this very year, but as sort of an unbelievable coda to a very respectable career. And he's genuinely beloved, not just by, uh, you know, uh, front office types, but by players as well. And this is where, again, this total lack of self-awareness on the part of the, the Vancouver Canucks ownership group and the and, and hockey management structures really comes to bear. Because, again, this is, I mean, as, as, as you pointed out, you know, there is a parochial sort of interest in the Canucks as a team that you cheer for. But broadly speaking, you know, the rest of these the hockey public doesn't think very much about the Vancouver Canucks unless they're playing against them. Now you have brought the entire hockey attention squarely upon what's going on in this organization. And as I mentioned before, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of the dysfunction. So they have made a, a very bad situation exponentially worse. And for reasons I don't understand. And and to bring in Rick Tockett, I mean, this is not a situation. This is not like Sean Payton in, in the NFL where, you know, you're, you're going to move mountains to get a, co- a coach that you think can be a culture changer. I mean, Rick Tockett, is this the guy? Yikes. All this for Rick Tockett does not seem to add up to me. Well, his Bruce Boudreaux, uh, his hockey career, he played for the Leafs. He played for the Chicago Blackhawks. He was up and down for the minors. It was a very, I mean, comparatively speaking, he played in the the show. That's really all that matters. He made it. Um, he was up and down a lot from the minors up to the NHL. He actually played in your backyard there eh? in St. Catharines for the Saints um, back in the day. And um, But the thing is, is that his his coaching career is long and successful, right? And we'll talk about Rick Tockett in a second. Because this, this translates into everybody's lives for jobs and getting replaced at work, right? Like, this is this is not an NHL story anymore. This is just high profile because it's an NHL story. And, um, like, th- this guy, like, his time in Washington, his time in Anaheim, like, he literally crushed it. And this is a grown man who he was, what was he born in? Um, 1955. So he's 68. He's a grown man crying, standing there with tears and eyes crying on the bench in an interview with reporters of all of his experience saying, I'm laughing because it's easier. It helps me not cry right now. Like he, I'm, I, Cole's notes, that's not verbatim. Um, but he literally was going through that, 68 years old, standing there with tears in his eyes, soaking it in because he deserved that to soak it in. And so that's how impactful he is a consummate professional. And yet what is going on with the organization, man? Because I got to say, Taylor, like this is repeat after repeat and either the organization just doesn't care. Um, or, 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 or there's something wrong. There's something wrong. I mean, Oh, yeah, no, I'm mean, put this, off. It, it is. It's really, truly hardly hard to, to believe, hard to explain. If you had to explain to someone who doesn't understand hockey, uh, it would be very difficult to start. You don't start from the beginning. You say, well, look, this is a, a franchise that is no stranger to, to dysfunction. But when you start seeing, you know, coach upon coach, GM upon GM, you'll go back to Jim Benning before the president of hockey operations, uh, uh, Jim Rutherford. I mean, we're talking about now getting on decades of dysfunction and, and, and the executives and the coaches that leave, leave with their reputations in tatters and often in, in, in hard relationships. You look at Trevor Linden, Mike Gillis, Jim Benning, uh, all of these players in and out. Uh, Stan Smeal comes in and says, we're going to have an exhaustive search. That exhaustive search is about 72 hours before they hire J- Jim Rutherford. So the question then becomes, okay, so what's the common denominator here? And that, unfortunately, we look to the ownership group. And generally speaking, again, this is something that if you're a sports fan, I'm not so sure we can be as, uh, the, the or the average sports fan is as sensitive to the issues of ownership as maybe they should be. I mean, ownership plays a lot larger of a role in terms of the organizational culture uh, of a sports team than, than we'd like to think. And Francesco Aquilini and the Aquilinis in general have desperately failed that market in terms of, of providing stability and a clear path forward. Have you ever recalled anything like this in the NHL or at least in Western sports? I mean, there have been some stories of football teams that have had some family infighting. But I don't recall anything like that. But this is your world because, Taylor, you know, your job is sports. I mean, you're assistant professor, professor, sports management at Brock. Um, you know, do you recall anything like this in the in Western sports? Absolutely nothing like this in terms, especially in terms of the decision to keep him on as long as they have. We've had situations where things get ugly between you know coaches and, and teams and, and you know coaches have said things publicly. Uh, certainly yeah, managers and coaches is a common one. Yeah, exactly. One of the strangest aspects of the story is the easiest move is, of course, 
Two weeks prior to this, you fire Bruce Boudreaux, as they are want to do. I mean, this has been a bad season. Um, and replace him with a head, uh, an assistant coach, which they've got on staff with a decade of head coaching experience in the NHL, who's there to serve just the same purpose to be brought in as an interim, Mike Yo. So that's the common path here. I mean, the common path is coach leaves, interim head coach is named, and then we do a full search at the end of the season. This particular way of doing things which is to say a open courting of an on-air television personality who you know again rick talkett who is not a sure thing by any stretch if such a thing exists in nhl coaching there is not certainly no equivalence in nhl time this harkens back actually to a very very distant part of nhl history and hockey history is a piece of my my research interest but way back in terms of when the original six ownership groups were were essentially uh, mafioso family structures where you'd have you know nephews and uncles running things and, and it reminds me a little of that where the incompetence is more out of a, of a deliberate level of pettiness than any sort of unprofessionalism but this time this is just shockingly unprofessional and extremely unproductive to the everyday operation of the vancouver canucks okay well this sounds like it's going to be a whole new chapter in your curriculum this one i mean it's still precedent setting um how not to do business how many how many weeks do you think that this has really been now this is an estimate but like really been fragile where boudreaux knew okay uh the clock is ticking now we're probably done and i would say it's probably the christmas break but how long do you think that he like that really he had the the clue well there's been a lot of microphones in front of bruce boudreaux asking him basically that question like when did you know the ring was on the wall the month that he names specifically in terms of the the month that he started quote unquote, hearing things about, about a possible replacement was November, which if oh, wow. you consider how long, I mean, again, as you put it back, I mean, imagine this from any job that anyone has in any profession anywhere in the world. Imagine that, mm -hmm. that you go a month, another month over Christmas, the Christmas break, heading into the all-star break just about now, or like over the, 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 the amount of time it would take to wonder whether or not you're going to, you're going to be, be fired or not. And again, one of the things that is so important to recognize about the, the professional sports landscape is that it's everyone's most stressful day of the week every single day you walk into work. I mean, it is absolute uh, high pressure. Every team meeting could be someone's last team meeting. Every meal could be someone's last meal. I mean, you're all just struggling to keep your head above water and to have be living like that. That's on a normal sort of setting. Then to have the, the hatchet right above your neck like that for that long, I mean, that that is absolutely a lot to take for anyone, especially if you were at the beginning of your career, maybe you're sort of expecting that kind of harsh break in. But as you pointed out, I mean, this is a 68 year old professional Jack Adams winner um, with, with a staff around him who are also experienced. I mean, again, Mike Yo being on that staff is, as well, being a good example, who know exactly that this is this is completely unprofessional as well. And again, what what just stuns me is that they were talking about replacements as maybe perhaps as early as, as November, maybe into December. And the replacement that they land on, that they would risk their reputation and sewer their public relations and put their PR staff through an absolute uh, nightmare mm. is to bring in this this new coach, Rick Tockett, which, I mean, no, very few coaches I could imagine justifying something like this, but but certainly it is a very risky, and it puts these the new regime in an absolutely terrible position to start with, where you're starting essentially as an enemy uh, in, your own, in your own marketplace. It's not a good place to start for any coach. Well, he's no Jared Bednar. And Jared Bednar is probably the, one of the best examples of a guy who has always had incredible success at all levels. And then every time he's taken over a team, he's been able to turn them around real quick. I mean, talk about a guy with a track record. Give that He's the coach of Colorado. Okay, so if you're an employee in a company, any company, not hockey, and you look at this is what's happening to the bosses. And they've got your boss. You know your boss is not going to be your boss. It's been a few weeks. They treat your boss like crap. Why would you want to stay there? First of all, because I mean, even the staff, like you said, PR people, that blows my mind. If you're Rick Tockett, why would you want to even go there at this point if this is how the last guys have been kicked out? And if you're the players, you watch the trade requests come in now. And um, and there's already a couple already on the table. And then there's um, and then if you're Mike Yo, who probably would qualify anyway. So you've already got the experience. Now it's very clear that you're never going to get a shot at being the head coach. Why would you stay like this? So if you're, if you're driving a truck um, right now and your boss is, is, is gone and you know that, well, this is no way to be treated. Why would you ever want to be the boss? If you're a security person, right? Or if you're getting up to go be a middle manager for your job, why would you want to stay with that company when you know you're going to get walked out like that and and get your butt kicked on the way out the door? I, I 
am I offside in that? Do you think, Absolutely. or or is this? Because I mean, I think this translates to everyone's experience. Just higher profile. Absolutely, and there are many people that hold that that work, you know, everyday jobs uh, with that organization that work middle manager job, that work human resources, that work, you know, hockey operations is a much more, I think, uh, labyrinthian world than I think people realize. There are a lot of people that, um, are, sure, there's a lot of ex-NHLers there, uh, but there's a lot of, you know, workaday people that work for the Vancouver Canucks who are living in a world that you just sort of outlined here, which is to say they're, they're sort of living in sort of disarray and, and fear of their mercurial taste of their the, their big, big, big boss, the Francesco Accolini family. But then there is something that's unlike the labor conditions that I think, you know, you and me and everyone who's probably listening to this is familiar with them, which is that, you know, we all go to work because we, we need the job and we we need to work and we need to to be employed in these various places. Maybe we have a little bit of agency in that regard. But imagine a landscape in which you have a lot of say in where you apply your trade. And, you know, the notion of free agency was created for this very reason. And they are going through a very, very, very public fight right now with the representation of their team captain, who looks to be on his way out the door as well. Uh, this is so you think, okay, well, they treated a coach bad, big deal. It's the NHL, get over it. Well, this is not the way it was in, say, the 1970s, and the 1980s, where, you know, especially we go even further back than that one before the days of free agency at all. But players have a large amount of say in where they go to apply their trade. And that's even players who are drafted by the Canucks, for instance. So right now, if you're looking at the Canucks and you're thinking, if you're like a 20, if you're Elias Pedersen, if you are, you know, one of these players oh, that's... What future? Yeah. And, and you look, you don't, you now have a lot more say in where you end up and what the shape of this future looks like than you used to. I would be thinking, you know... Did I sign up for this? I don't think uh, you know this isn't really something. I'm not. I don't need to be around for you all to figure this out. I've only got a certain amount of years to earn my money and set my my grandchildren up here. I'm gonna go do that in in, in Arizona. Or I'll do that in the, on Long Island, somewhere else. Please. I'll propose uh, one more pickle for you that they're in in Vancouver, and that is Seattle, because this Vancouver was this beautiful mecca where you could play Canadian hockey, but you didn't have to deal with Canadian winter. You didn't have to go to Winnipeg and, and you know, and have a block heater in your car. You didn't have to go to Edmonton to be super cold all the time, right? You didn't have to go to Ottawa and get buried in snow. Um, you could just go to Vancouver. You could, uh, it was green mostly. It's beautiful. It's stunning. But now there's Seattle. You don't have to go to Vancouver to live that lifestyle, right? And Seattle is very clearly becoming sort of this proxy Canadian market with the fanaticism, you know, kind of like the football teams and the ball teams and everyone else that comes from Vancouver. So I think that's a problem. And I think the other part to consider in here, who looks like a genius in all of this is Trevor Linden because Trevor Linden left in 2018. Good point. And, and speaking first to the Seattle point, I mean, um, this, this is a, a show that has a wide listenership. I mean, you're familiar with the fact. So for instance, the GTA where, where I'm living right now, um, the Leafs have an iron grip over the GTA. Like, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's it's truly remarkable. I mean, it's... kind of have an iron grip over Canada. <laughs> it's it really is stunning. Do. I mean, my 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 classrooms are just filled with Leaf fans. Leaf fans who've seen maybe two games in their entire lives, and they were both probably preseason games because you have to be bequeathed season tickets. You can't buy them. Uh, and yet, mm. the Leafs are king. That's not the relationship the Canucks have with the greater Vancouver area in general. And again, if you're looking at who to blame... Is that any one general manager's fault? Is that Jim Weisbrot's fault? No, I mean, this is the fault of the ownership group that has not been able to necessarily capitalize on what were very, very, very good years in the early 2000s there, uh, in, in the mid-2000s or the 2010s that the Canucks had. They have not been able to, say, become the default option for all uh, you know, BC residents in general. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think that a new franchise, it's always got that nice new sheen on it too. The company, young kids wear Golden Knights stuff. I mean, success will do that, though the, the Kraken are definitely succeeding this year. So that's a huge issue as well. And and I think moving forward, why would you want to associate with an organization as a fan, as a player, as an, as an employee uh, that treats its, 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 its employees like this? That's a, a huge sort of issue uh, as well. But in terms of the free agency dimension, I mean, you're right. You could definitely stay in Seattle. You've also got places like Arizona and Florida now that you're also competing with. So if you don't want the winter, you can always escape that. Yeah. But but having a close regional rival right there is, 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 is not great. Well. You have a chance to play that super competitive, high-profile Canadian thing without having to deal with Canadian winter, and that's I think that's appealing. Um, yeah. And uh, Taylor McKee here is assistant professor of sports management, Brock University. Uh, I don't know if this is in the purview of it anyway, but I'm I'm smelling one hell of a lawsuit. I mean, he he has. I mean, in terms of employment, like wrongful termination or something like that. I mean, yeah. 
I suppose, I suppose, I mean, his case is pretty much about embarrassment and defamation and things like defamation, that. Defamation, yeah. Yeah, it, it just seems that, again, the the jeopardy on the part of the Canucks would are, again, this is, they're no stranger to employment lawsuits. There's one happening right now, a complaint against them in, in the uh, uh, former employee did, uh, dismissed this year, who was only hired mm-hmm. less than a year ago. So I, I, I wouldn't, I'd be foolish of me to say that it would never happen, um, though, this is just more unseemly than it is illegal in terms of the way this is not no one's asking them there's no law that protects you from embarrassing yourself as an organization but you know and and of coaches are not part of a unionized sort of labor force which makes this a little tougher again but but certainly my, my gut would tell me that this is not really a lawsuit sort of situation and uh, what what kind of damages would he be seeking if they were on the press saying bruce boudreaux's bad at his job and then did not yeah, hire him true. Yeah, I think maybe, but you know, I mean, honestly, they've, they've, the damage is done. I mean, there's no loss in the world that could quantify how much they have lost in the last little while here. Any pressure from the um, from the league? You think well, that is something that I think the league is extremely, extremely pissed off about. This is a, a conversation that, again, probably never will come to, to to the public light. Maybe one of the insiders will get this leaked to them. But you know, the league office is 100 percent going to be on the phone with not just Rutherford, but also the ownership groups themselves, because it is it is a cartel in that way. I mean, the, everyone's interests are at play here in certain ways. I mean, if you're the owner of the, the Pittsburgh Penguins, you're, you're this is embarrassing to everybody. And mm-hmm. Bruce Boudreaux has a lot of friends around this league and a lot of friends in, in other markets and a lot of friends in ownership groups in other places. He's won them a lot of games. And not to mention the fact he leaves as the fourth winningest coach in terms of percentages in, in Vancouver Canucks mm-hmm. history. He's only been there, you know, a year and a half, but it's, He's got a lot of friends and 100%, I would say that there's someone's going to pick up a phone and, and talk to someone over there because this is deeply, deeply embarrassing. Taylor McKee, assistant professor of sports management at Brock in St. Kitts. Thank you for the insight, brother. It's nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the shift podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple podcast, Google podcast, Spotify and curious 